Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. We are building a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. Our flagship enterprise, so to speak, is the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, where we are empowering professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first PM role. And we need all the volunteers we can get. So I'm just going to put that out there. If you're a product manager listening here live or on the podcast, Google the IPMA, the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. We need volunteers because it takes a village to build a better future, which we're trying to do. The other part of what we're trying to do in building a better future is just bringing you, everybody listening, the best innovative minds in the business and letting you connect with them if you want to raise your hand and talk and also hear their expertise and make product management knowledge a little bit more accessible and available to everyone. We have a great show today. We're going to talk about best practices during discovery. And we have product managers with experience at Netflix, VMware, Oracle, and some amazing companies on the stage here with me. And we're going to get a chance for you in the audience to raise your hand and come up on stage and share your perspective or ask your question. But first, product discovery. Samea, you're the queen of helping people understand why is the topic important. So why should everybody listen to today's conversation about discovery? All right. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. You know, one of the people who have been involved in these conversations on this podcast many times, I think maybe this is the third time we're having it. And the reason why we're doing this is because it's such a worthy topic. It has a lot of nuance. There is, you know, you can talk about it at a high level and agree on some principles. But if we want to dig deeper and talk about what it looks like at a company at, at the scale of, let's say, Netflix or Google, it's probably going to look slightly different than, you know, a company that's a startup or in the early stage of its product maturity. There is so much to learn. It's such a rich topic. So I'm excited that we're having it again. Two things to look forward to in this conversation, at least for me. Again, different perspectives from our guests who have different experiences and learn something from that. And then the second thing is when we're talking about the tools and the techniques and the different methodologies that people use. I think everyone has their own recipe. So the nuance there is going to be exciting to discover. Back to you, Jeff. All right. Thank you, Samaya. And as Samaya said, two weeks ago, we really double-clicked on best practices for customer interviews. And I think relative to our previous episode, I'm hoping we could dive deeper on the different methods and then dive deeper into maybe some of the others other than direct interviews. So Pam, we're going to hear from you, but let everybody know. Tell us a little bit about your journey in product. I've been in healthcare for a long time, and I did a lot of the implementations all the professional services and other things. And I moved into product because I wanted to build those things that were broken. 
if that makes sense. And this is back when it wasn't really fully, you know, pragmatic marketing was really sort of new, if you will. There wasn't a lot of product management roles at that time. And so the journey was really from the beginning, sort of ground up. What do we see as product? What did product mean in that environment that I was in? And it, it has progressed when I moved from, I was in an, a healthcare provider software company and I moved into a high tech company. And there was a huge difference in product management between those roles. Although it was in the same healthcare life sciences industry, the roles and what they meant and what we were doing were different as well as when I was building a net new product versus maintaining and supporting a legacy product, if you will. I think those are really kind of old terminologies. Again, the, the tactics and the approach to product management are different based on what kind of role you're looking at. And in one of the companies I was at, it was actually a startup inside a very large company. And so that even took on another nuance. So I've really been pretty excited to have stepped through that journey where, you know, sort of the ground up, if you will, from product management, what it started out as is, and how it's being implemented and used in companies. All right, Pam, thanks for sharing. Thanks for being here. And then Charles, welcome. Tell us a little bit about your journey in product. Sure thing. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello, everyone. So my journey into product was I accidentally fell into product. I had a bunch of different roles in supply chain, product marketing. And then um, after a reorg, ended up in a product management function whereby we had to go discover what customers wanted so we can innovate on a product. The product in this case was Office 365. So my journey into product was unconventional, but really interesting. So in terms of the different kind of discovery methods that I've used, interviewing, in-person interviews, co-creations, ethnography, semiotics, low fidelity mocks, testing, using like usertesting.com, journey mapping, and also um, some concepts with end users. So I've been pretty blessed to have had a pretty wide range of discovery experiences in partnership with my research team and my previous company. So to me, I would say I'm as a PM, you spend a lot of your time thinking about the why and the best way to get more signals to really clarify what the why is, is by doing product discovery. So it's the like the analogy of if you have a, a tree to cut and an ax, you spend 90% of your time sharpening an ax and then 10% cutting down the tree. After that as a PM, we don't want in a product kind of building function, spending a lot of the time doing discovery to really understand the why, the motivations, what is said, what is also not said, and inferring the difference is what uh, differentiates good versus great product management. And double-clicking on that, so you're saying 90% sharpening the axe. How much time would you spend on discovery? And is that what you meant by the 90%? Or how much time do you spend on discovery? And has that changed as you've worked on different products? Great follow-up question. So I would say the exploratory phase, before you get to like spec writing, it's 90% discovery. Discovery can be a host of different things. If you're in a V1 product, you may have to do more external kind of scoping and discovery. Even in a V-next product, you just have to like look at customer feedback insights, what's working, what's not working as part of your discovery. So your discovery methods change or flex based off the maturity phase of the product you're working on. What kind of industry you're on? Is it regulated or non-regulated? And then once you're done with your discovery, that usually moves on to your spec or your PRD where you kind of articulate the why and the different scenarios that folks should care about. And then partnering with your design team and your research team, you move that forward in partnership with your engineering team to build, or in this case, build and test a product or a feature. Thank you, Charles. And then Pam, you've worked at several companies in a product manager role. 
how much time do you spend on discovery? What percentage of your role or your time spent at work is on discovery? And has that changed depending on the product and the company that you're at? It absolutely has. And Charles did a nice job of laying out really the, the flow of where it goes. So discovery can mean different things um, depending on what type of product you're building. Like I said earlier, I think it's it's a net new or if it's uh, add-on to existing. So that discovery is going to take different shapes and forms. Net new is a lot of market research. You want to do that validation. So there's a lot of market research, really putting together that business case, defining your who, what, why, and where meaning who are the people that are going to use it? What problem are you trying to solve? Why is it needed? And then what the market is that you're bringing it to. And so that really needs to take shape is to figuring out when you're doing that intersection with the customers or potential customers. So oftentimes that discovery will take shape where you don't have customers. You're really trying to put something out there. It could be emerging market, a net new product that no one's done yet, uh, or a variation of an already existing product, which is what most people are, are used to. And so what you have to take into consideration is, you know, what kind of agreements do you have? What are you willing to share with the market before you're ready to go to market? Because the other things that have to be considered are the revenue recognition. You know, so in product, I think the cool thing is if we build great things and we solve problems for people. But we also have to keep in mind that revenue recognition where we can't go too far down that road in our discovery and our conversations with customers, prospects, as well as the market. So often that discovery could also be with analysts where we're not making promises or things like that because that revenue recognition really does take shape. So in my experience, what I've done is each of the roles that we've each of the products and each of the teams that we've worked with, we sort of all do the homework, if you will, that's needed. And when we're looking to start setting up those sessions with customers, often I've done them as road mapping sessions. So maybe the existing customer base that we have could be road mapping sessions where we're trying to figure out what their pain points are. And that can sort of help us map to where we're going. All right. And then Samaya, just for completeness, do you have any thing to add differently? Has your experience been the same, different than theirs, or have you seen it vary across the experiences that you've had? I like how Charles and Pam have framed it. So I would go with that and dig deeper as we continue the conversation, but nothing really to add. Nothing really. I don't think you've ever uttered that phrase before, but we're going to tap into your wealth of knowledge that you're saving for later. So real quick, I want to hear from each of you What's been your your go-to book or resource that you've used that has crafted how you think about discovery work? And if not a book or resource that has created your thinking, is there any sort of framework that you found most valuable? I'm going to go to Charles first because I think you're ready for this question, and then we'll go Samaya and then Pam. My top three in no priority order is uh, the jobs to be done framework. Next is uh, how might we, and then third is uh, journey mapping slash funnels. And I'll talk a little bit about each of them. With a job to be done, it kind of helps you abstract the problem versus trying to build a solution looking for a problem. So talking about jobs to be done is a pretty high level way of decomposing the problem, making sure you're understanding it. How might we, I like that because it just creates a broader playing field or surface area for you to go solve a problem. So for example, if it's, um, I want to leave my house and go to the grocery store, I can frame the question as, how do I drive to the grocery store? But by doing that, I lose out on different modes of getting to the grocery store by 
taking a bite, getting a ride, taking a ride share, by saying, how might I get to the grocery store? I'm opening up that question for other novel ways of solving the problem. And the last but not least is a journey mapping. So looking at the end-to-end -end of a process or a flow, and then looking at where the drop-offs are and honing on where the drop-offs are as areas of opportunity to improve the product is another method I like a lot. So in summary, jobs to be done, how my we or HMW, and then journey mapping slash funnels. And um, my recommendation that's different than what I provided last time, if you've heard me talk about the continuous discovery book, for today, really, I want to go back to something that I use a lot in my work, and that's the double diamond framework by the Design Council. If you go on designcouncil.org.uk, and, and this is the UK-based one, they have this double diamond framework that shows, you know, the start of a product discovery or product definition, starting with discovery, moving on to definition, then development, delivery, and confirmation, etc. That double diamond and the content you can find there has a lot of supporting techniques and activities that people can do. But part of why I'm a huge fan is because when it comes to definition of the problem, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. Sometimes we talk about discovery and we decouple it from understanding the problem and we're just talking about discovery of a solution. When in reality, there is also a discovery of a problem. Because sometimes what happens is you start with a hypothesis around a problem. And then as you do discovery, you find out that that problem is really not the right one for the team to solve. And there is another problem that might either be more desirable or more feasible or more you know, important or has more outcomes that your company needs. So I'm a fan of that approach and I highly recommend it for people to use and to think about. All right. Pam. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. I think I would just add to that is, especially most recently, we'll go in and when I talk about a business case, it's really what is it we're going to build? Why are we going to build it? And we do that to first determine if the company's willing to invest in that, right? And so it's really critical, as I was saying earlier, you know, what is the problem? And as you do that market research and you start putting out what that product mission is, what the solution is, at a high level, right? We're not doing everything all at once. What the target market is, what the differentiators are, what the competition is, and the personas, a high-level marketing message, thought of what your financial summary is going to look like. That actually, the way you do it is you, you start out with what you think the problem is. You start going through and building out that other information that's really tangible and needed to make that investment. You're going to end up sometimes pivoting because you might come across and say, well, this persona or the problem for these sets of users is different than this problem over here. Does that fit in with what the product mission is? Does that fit in with the solution we're trying to do? Maybe we're creating two modules that ties on to that. So I think that's, I think I'm hopefully just supporting what Samia and Charles have just said. All right. Thank you. So now we have these frameworks. Appreciate sharing those. I think the double diamond, I think that's the first time we've heard the double diamond framework mentioned on the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. Our true fans can go back and double check if I'm right about that. But I want to see, we, we've got these frameworks. They're, they're highly recommended. And now 
what are the challenges? The frameworks almost make it seem easy, and we had a whole conversation about this before, but what makes it difficult? Where is the, when the rubber meets the road and you're trying to figure out the job to be done or you're you're trying to better understand your customers, where is it difficult? Where's the challenge? So I'm going to start with Sumeya because I could always put you on the spot, and then Charles and then Pam can just chime in right afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to start with the most difficult part of our job, of course, (laughs) that has no easy answers, and that's the alignment piece. So regardless of what you find or even your plan and the people you're going to talk to, there is like an alignment that you need to create within your company, within your team. Again, I'm talking a lot about teams that have more than, you know, three people at their core. You need to create that alignment around, oh, what is the problem we need to solve? How are we going to go about discovering whether this is the right problem? How are we going to develop hypotheses around the solution? And then how are we going to, you know, start working or agree on that solution and start working on it? So getting everyone on the same page around that is extremely important. And the reason why is because the definition of success is something that everyone on the team has to be on the same page about. You don't want to be going down 100 miles an hour just working through and talking to customers and defining, you know, these hypotheses. And then everyone is like, what are we doing? Why are we doing it this way? Why are we not doing it this other way? So that alignment around doing things a certain way and getting energy of everyone around the process is important. Beyond process, let's say you have that down pat because once you do it one time with your team, you actually never have to explain it again because they see it working. They will, you know, they'll become believers in it. The second one, then the next challenge that I face or I see happen a lot is when it comes to discovering new data or discovering new problems that the team hasn't hadn't defined early on, And then making sure that that learning is not seen as a failure. So, you know, you go from discovery, then you go to definition, let's say, and then you go to development and you roll it out to your customer. And once you roll it out to your customer, they tell you this is not really what we want. Ideally, you don't want that to happen, but that in itself is a discovery of something. And depending on the timeline, if all it took you was, let's say, two weeks In the grand scheme of things, that might not be a big deal, especially in a large enterprise. If it took you, you know, a year, that's definitely a problem. So how do you frame these learning opportunities for the team in a way where they can get learnings out of them and then they can use those learnings to help them then jumpstart the next iteration of their discovery and definition and building, etc.? Charles, what about you? What's the most difficult aspect, the biggest challenge in applying these frameworks in reality? Yeah, I mean, in addition to what um, Sumaya shared, I'd say um, leveraging product sense is the most important thing. So there's a ton of frameworks, ton of books, ton of different things to do that. But the, the differentiator is product sense. Product sense is that squishy thing where everyone tells you you need it, but no one tells you how to develop it. And uh, you develop it over time. But I'll say with product sense, you're able to really identify, are we solving the right problem? So maybe I kind of hinted upon that with um, what you shared on success. You know, for me, I like to think of what are indications of, are we right or are we wrong? Uh, because being able to cost adjust early on is helpful versus getting too deep and then having some cost fallacy whereby the cost of like stopping is high. So folks just like muddle along and 
you know, produce a product that um, is suboptimal. And then also, um, these frameworks kind of indicate a lot of linearity. But as everyone on the call will tell you, product making is not linear. It's very messy. You zig and zag a lot. In my previous company, I worked on a password management project, and we zigged and zagged all over the way. Eventually failed in V1, but we were able to come back and regroup to solve for V2. That landed well. So in summary, I'd say um, product sense, helping you decipher which framework works for you or not. Understanding that um, it's not always linear. Sometimes it's non-linear or I like to call it sine wave. And then having um, leading and lagging indicators of success. So if I'm right, what would that look like? If I'm wrong, what would that look like? Early in the stage so that you can cost adjust is um, some key things that I've found to be kind of challenges during discovery. I was just going to say, Charles, I love the zig and zag comment that's such a strength like some people can see it as chaos but i think it's one of the hallmarks of the healthiest product development team if they're doing this zigzagging thing of course with data driven behind it and it's not happening every second i mean there are some criteria you can have chaos versus (laughs) truly like mindful pivoting or change of direction. But I think it's something where a little more nuance and conversation, we should discuss it because the first time it happens, I think, to a starting PM, it feels very uncomfortable. They're like, oh, I I told them we're going to do this, but now I'm changing direction. And how do they feel comfortable enough to do that? Which actually relates. So I would like the question I had. So Diving into what Sumeo was asking and also what I'm really curious about is I know you're speaking here on your own independent thoughts, uh, your own opinions, and you're not speaking for Netflix and you won't give away any sort of trade secrets at Netflix. But Netflix is just such a company with so many users and such a high velocity and such a risk of zigging and zagging. And you've got millions and millions and millions of customers who are relying on you for an experience. So How does discovery look like, without giving anything away about Netflix in particular, now this is just your own opinions, in a high velocity, a lot of customer environment, that's the scientific word, a lot of customer environment. (laughs) But in an environment like that, how do you interpret the signals that you're in the right path when there could be so much noise and so much variation among your users? Like you said, speaking on um, own volition, I'm not sharing anything proprietary. I'll say there's two big words. One starts with A, next is B. So uh, I think folks know externally that Netflix is a big use of A-B testing as a way to figure out are we on the right track or not. So we um, leverage experimentation a lot to figure out is a problem you're solving, is the solution we propose solving the problem we see, and how are the metrics trending? And not every test is successful, but even from tests that don't work, we learn a lot and we use that to continually iterate on the product. So I'll say um, benefits of companies with big user bases and also data-driven approaches, you're able to run these large-scale experiments at scale. That's really unique to very like few companies. And it's something that Netflix definitely leverages from a product management standpoint, um, that A-B testing as part of the product management toolkit. Obviously, other things we use, but um, I'd say A-B test is a really uh, powerful piece of the toolkit. Now, this is open to anybody, but I believe there's a Jeff Bezos quote, or at least a quote that's attributed to him. And as a professor, I should cite my sources, so I apologize. So let's pretend it's, whether it's Jeff Bezos or it's a made-up quote, but never let data get in the way of a good anecdote or something to that effect. How do we marry 
the power of stories, the power of an interview and truly understanding the why and having a lot of confidence that that why is real and maybe pervasive versus letting prototyping, experimenting, and seeing how the market as a whole responds. I'll go to Pam or Sumeya, whoever wants to chime in first on that question. I can share a fail and a success, if that's okay. And the fail you can learn from that, is that acceptable? So we, in one of my companies, we were rebuilding a, a new soft, a new product, and it's a complicated one. We thought we knew our why, and we thought we knew all the players because we'd already done it before. We were just doing different things with it. And we released it into a completely different market. And so our why changed, right? So I think, you know, all of the people that we were working with from panels and industry experts were not in a different country. So that really points to, I think, what the group here has been saying is, you know, ensuring that your personas and your stories, I think healthcare is probably a little bit different than what's being discussed here. But I think there's enough similarities where, you know, there's bazillions of personas, I can only imagine, for Netflix. But and a success was we changed our process. So we would do an intake process, which is a basically what I outlined before, which is a business plan, which doesn't take, you only get three weeks to put it together, right? So you don't get to do it for years. And then you get the green light, you do a POC, which is a three-week POC. It's not six months or anything. So you're limiting your resources and you're testing the market with that. And that testing the market could be with partners. It could be with existing customers. It could be internally, depending on what it is that tool or, or thing is that you're um, looking at. So there's just a couple of ways to take a look at that when you're going to market. And I think that it's the tool and the approach is industry specific in some cases. So for example, some of the things that we do in healthcare are very similar to what you would see in hospitality or what you would see in auto mechanics, if you will, and somewhat in communications, but it's not applicable to other areas just because there's it's highly regulated. And it's really important to understand your where because your regulations are going to differ from the States versus Canada versus UK versus APAC, et cetera. All right. Thank you so much. And then Samay, I'm going to give you and Charles, if you wanted to chime in on the question of balancing that customer interview where you get the depth and the why and the story versus the A-B testing and the data from the people walking with their feet, so to speak, choosing with their feet. So either of you want to chime in on that before we go to audience questions? I don't have any rule, like very specific rule, similar to, you know, the the one you shared, because I can think of scenarios where that doesn't work either. I mean, one anecdote, one customer versus a thousand customers' behaviors on your app, maybe each one tells you something differently and it's, it's just asking you to go and discover more. So if you find that there is such a conflict, I think you should discover more. It's a great indicator that more discovery is needed. The worst thing you can do is ignore either one of those types of data, quantitative or qualitative. And if you have it, you know, you should actually sit down, understand it and use it as a driver for, you know, defining either the problem you want to go after, the hypotheses you want to validate. When you set up experiments, I love the practice of like defining what success looks like early on. What are your main metrics and your counter metrics? That way, when the results come out, you don't have to decipher and guess, okay, it's up good or down bad. 
So kind of um, having clear sex metrics before you do any test helps separate any confusion when the results come back. All right. Thank you, everybody, for that context. And I just want to quickly, I was doing some Googling in the background to verify my memory. He did not say never let data get in the way of a good anecdote, which I actually like that as a, maybe I can call that a, a Shulmanism to claim that one. But he said, when the anecdotes and the data disagree, the anecdotes are usually right. And he said that at a leadership forum at the George W. Bush Presidential Center. This is in an article from 2018. So I just don't like to create <laughs> fake news out there. So that that's the actual quote. I don't know. <laughs> I kind of like the never let data get in the way of a good anecdote, although I feel like that's too absolute. So any any reaction? Of- <laughs> well, the, the big one there, you said anecdotes. Uh, yeah. In his... <laughs> in, in the real quote, <laughs> uh, that one, you know, you have a bunch of anecdotes telling you something and then a bunch of t- data telling you something. Yeah, that makes a little more sense. But one anecdote versus a lot of data <laughs> feels a little weird. <laughs> a little sketchy and never. Yeah. So maybe I won't make that a shulmanism. Maybe we'll just strike that from the record, uh, although it's immortalized here in the podcast. <laughs> All right. How would you just add an S to it? Yeah. <laughs> Make it plural. And then add a like Sumeaism to the front. Like maybe it depends, but you probably shouldn't let <laughs> data get in the way of good anecdotes, plural, because you can't go never, not in product management. Anyway, sorry, I digress. So now we got time for audience questions. First, I just have to give a plug. We are on a race. So Sumeya Red and I started this podcast a little over a year ago, or maybe about a year and a half, and we are reaching 100,000 cumulative downloads of the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. Shameless plug, one of our metrics, by ours meaning at least mine, is that we wanted to hit, I wanted to hit 100,000 downloads before 2023. So we have only three weeks left, less if you're listening on the podcast. So if you can, and you're hungry for knowledge on product management, please, please, please subscribe and go download every single past episode of the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. Tell all your friends, because again, what we're trying to do is make knowledge and people more accessible. And we're bringing audiences, some of the best product managers in the business, and we want to see that impact. We want to see people listen to it. We want to see people make better decisions for it. And I, Sumeya and Red, we want to see more inclusive product management happen because of this. So we want all of you in your discovery work and your solutions to be thinking more inclusively. And we've got a lot of great content on that. Uh, So please help us get to 100,000 downloads before 2023. Now, it's not a great OKR, right, Sumaya? Because I don't know exactly what that truly measures, (laughs) but I want to hit that goal. Well, we did. We did always say, I mean, to be transparent, almost two years ago, we said one of the key indicators that will tell us that we are making an impact is if we have that kind of download, you know, 100,000 downloads. 100,000 downloads of people who repeatedly download the episodes in itself tells us that there was some value. Otherwise, people are not going to download it again. And for sure, we're not paying for brand new listeners every single time. So I think the data tells us a lot. And we're so honored that so many people listen to it. And hopefully they've been able to get some nuggets that are helpful here and there. So just wanted to add that. Thank you. Yeah, because collectively the why, the 100,000 is just a number, but the downloads, what it means to me is that people are hearing from a diverse group of product managers. They're learning how to do their craft better. 
and they are learning how to do their craft more inclusively, which does drive performance outcomes. And then I also hope that they're learning from the people like Pam and Charles that they are spending their valuable time giving back to everybody else. So I'm hoping that more people will be inspired to give back to other product managers who are at the same stage and to the next generation. So help us get to 100,000. Now, Red... The main reason I want to get to 100,000 is so that I could say that this phrase has been heard 100,000 times. Are you red, E? <laughs> they can hear the sigh a thousand times. How about that? <laughs> I will say 100,000 times, Jeff, of you making that joke doesn't really make the joke any better. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> It's a metric of success, man. A hundred thousand times the people can't be wrong. <laughs> you know, if I lost a hundred thousand deals, it doesn't make it okay. It just means I lost a hundred thousand deals. So with that in mind, I will point out as we're going into Q&A and the opportunity for such, I will inspire some questions and answers with the following quick little story. I'm in my office today and somebody comes up to me and says, Red, Red, I'm super excited. And I'm like, what, what, what are you excited about? Well, we're bringing DEI to our company for the first time where we're going to bring a more official stance rather than a passive one, a proactive one. I said, that's very interesting. And you know, who, who are you thinking about including? And this person's on customer success. And then we start talking about product and I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking in my, in my back of my mind the whole time. Like I remember when we started the product management center together, Jeff, and then when Samaya, you joined the mix, the whole idea of bringing inclusivity to product. And our hypothesis about what it could do to change the world, to change the world of product. And to be at 100,000 episodes, it just reminds me of like why it's worth it every day. It's, it's not just about any one given moment, but by just a continuing growing impact on product that we're having. And for the speakers that were here today that were contributing, it might be one episode for you, but you should know your voice lives on long after today. And so whenever the point of this entire thing is that whenever Jeff makes a bad joke, it lives on forever, and that many people will continue to be hurt by it. That's exactly what I was trying to make a point about this entire time, Jeff. Thanks, Red. <laughs> Thanks, Red. <laughs> Question time. <laughs> <laughs> so if you would like to feel really a thank you to end off your year and going into next, there are so many businesses that are trying to right their wrongs and improve on their crafts. Every question you ask today gives a chance for everyone else to listen was maybe too afraid to ask that question, wasn't empowered. So I invite you all to muster that strength, think about the community, raise your hand. And if you're someone who's shy, DM me on LinkedIn or find me on the Slack group for the group that we have here, the Product Management Center. So with that in mind, we have a hand-raised individual that has been invited up on stage. Anybody else, if you are curious and want to learn more or inspire the community, this is your chance to give back by asking a question. Who could have thought it would be that simple? You could be your own Christmas miracle. That's right, folks. You could be the Hanukkah present. Just raise that hand and ask that question. So, uh, Oh, sorry. That's me laughing in the background. I just had to put that on audio. I'm loving everything you're dishing up, man. Of course. So with that in mind, I try to keep things anonymous. So I'll be doing attempting first names. Duran, you have the stage to ask your question and influence those who have not asked one, but hopefully share the same question. So Durand, if you can unmute yourself, the stage is yours, my friend. Yeah, Red is funny. It's, it's one of those things where <laughs> you're listening to people give their own inside jokes. The safest thing to do when you're, you're not a part of the inside crew, just laugh. 
just laugh and act like you know exactly what they're talking about. I'm sitting here laughing with you guys on mute, like I understand your jokes, but it always works out that way. So mine is a bit of a perspective. One, I love that you all are having this room because quite oftentimes we're, we're talking about the graphic designers and people that spend a lot of time pixelating and Photoshop and the software engineers that spend a lot of time making the engine work, but we don't talk about the liaison people that sit between those two groups. So I'm excited about this room. I'm glad I accepted the random notification from LinkedIn. So shout out to that. Now, this is really for everyone on stage. Like this is more a consumer. So perhaps Charles is going to actually give a lot of feedback on this one, saying that Netflix sits at the mercy of consumer. So for Facebook, now known Meta, a product for them, Mark Zuckerberg always mentioned this, was Newsfeed. So unlike a, a physical product for Apple, such as the iPhone, they considered Newsfeed itself a product. And everything that's set inside of Newsfeed was a feature of Newsfeed. So for example, like the audio feature, I don't know if they still have it around, but Facebook Audio was a feature of their product Newsfeed. Like, how do you all think about that from that perspective of, you may have a consumer application and one tab inside of the application may sit as the actual product experience itself. And what are you all thinking around, if you've all been familiar with something similar, what do you all think is around turning these different hubs or sections or sub hubs inside of the platforms and seeing them as products that drive other services, features, and technologies? Uh, and Durand, uh, I think Pamela might be a first chiming because earlier, Pamela, you did point out about the idea of expansion versus net new products. So the stage is yours, and then we'll Thank go to Charles. You. Thank you. I'll be really quick. So you'll hear you hear a lot from me about business and market and finance. So when you ask that question to me, that's skew. So a net new product could be a new skew inside of a product suite. So when a you know a product management is about growing the business. And it's about being creative and, and all of that. So from my perspective, it's a new feature could be a new SKU or it could be a feature inside of an existing solution that makes it more attractive. It's a differentiator in the market that doesn't necessarily dictate a SKU is needed. And a SKU is really a price item line on the price list. So, so hopefully that's sort of short, sweet and crystal clear. Charles, what would you add to that or potentially in parallel? What advice would you provide? Sure. I mean, I'll start all the way from the top in terms of what are the business goals they're trying to achieve, be it with a feature or a product. Because some take, for example, look at Clubhouse um, was first the market with uh, audio first. And then we had Twitter Spaces. We had Spotify Greenroom. And now we have LinkedIn's version of it, which I don't think is even named. So you think of the, the whole feature versus product. The challenges of a standalone product versus a feature or a sub-feature is discovery. For a product like a Clubhouse, we open it, you're immersed into it. For a feature like this in LinkedIn, you have to like discover it. So that discovery means you need to have a pretty big funnel to start with, or a big user base, and then hope X or Y percentage makes it through the funnel. If you have a standalone product, then you want to make sure you're gaining consideration and awareness for folks to even download and consider your feature, consider the app. And then um, it's all about stickiness. So depending on where you position the product, a forefront or a tab or sub tab, we have to look at the stickiness and engagement, but um, it all boils down to what are the business goals you're trying to drive. And I think Apple does a really fantastic job whereby their install base is so big. So um, any feature that they add on has pretty good attach rate and stickiness. So they are a music product, they are Apple One products, in addition to their physical devices with a watch and the AirPods. It's a really nice uh, flywheel. So to borrow an Amazon term here, 
creating these um, sub-features or products help you stand alone as a separate product. And if you're like a big kind of multifaceted product, having these sticky features help with the flywheel effect. The last example I'll give is uh, Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace in terms of standalone feature versus embedded in a bigger product. Durand, we now have two different perspectives in terms of, you know, your initial question. Just out of curiosity, before maybe we switch to Sumeya's answer as well, what were you leading or biasing towards? What is initially keeping you up at night to make you want to ask this question of all questions? Uh, great, because I had a follow-up, but my answer can provide like the context of my follow-up as well. So I'm a software engineer. I'm also a graphic designer, but I spend most of my time nowadays because I or CTO handles most of the load on the code, is actually understanding the product experience. So for me specifically, that's something that's even as minute as how does the avatars on this particular screen animate when the finger actually touches it? Because that's really different from the aesthetic of it, which in my opinion would be a design decision. And that's different from how it's going to function regarding the code base and the load it's going to provide on the server. And there's not a lot of companies that really communicate between these three groups of individuals. The one company that actually made it popular, and they talk about this on Rehoffman's podcast, is Google, Marissa Mayer, when they started the associate product management team. And it was completely different from the designers, completely different from the engineers. And it sprouted like 50 of some of the most important people in Silicon Valley from the initial associate product management. Now, as far as my follow-up, I'm really gauging and then I'll move to the audience for other people to come on stage. Like, how does that work regarding the teams? Because if it's a product marketer, perhaps the product marketer is focused on retention for the particular user base. So if the cohort analysis said that, oh, we have 700 users that came in this month and 500 of them stayed, we need to increase the product experience to ensure that they not only stay, but they can increase, they can allow for other people to stay. That's a bit different from the top line marketing team, where the top line marketing team is probably focused on getting a brand experience out there and sales. How have you all seen the product marketing team working in concert to the overall marketing team? I'm really gauging, like, what's the difference when a person say product? Because for a lot of companies, it's just really been this loose term as a fill-in position that really has no, like, strong definition. Where so that's were you, really- like, three weeks ago, man? We, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, right, Jeff? We, we had this whole debate or conversation about growth product marketer, product marketing manager, growth yeah. in product. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Durant, I, not to sideline this one, but I think this is a plug for those of you who want to get us to 100,000. Yes. Go back. It was the Growing into a Growth PM, episode number six, Red. Great recollection. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to follow the podcast and download it, but I'm going I'm to move back to the listener stage. Thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Of course, and of course, and and you, we do have another question on stage we want to get to, but with respect, Charles or Pam, do you want to jump on any of that, or you want to say, let's just, oh, or Sumay as well, do any of you want to jump on that comment as it relates to the marketing piece? Up to you. I think I'll just add, you know, I talk a lot about the business case, and it sounds like this big thing, and it's intense, but it brings all the teams together, and so my experience has been product management determines the product strategy understands where we're going to go, looks at the market, does all that discovery, and product marketing takes it and makes it sexy, right? So product marketing takes it and then they'll pull up Animaker or whatever other tool that's out there and make it easy for the consumer, 
right? They do the the stuff that makes it shiny and fun, but they're part of the team. So as you're pulling everything together, you know, those stakeholders that are part of that initial piece that you're, you're working with and presenting to, they're part of that. It's, it's your product marketing, it's your sales lead, it's your CPO, it's your general manager, your head of engineering, you know, all of you are in, in the room. And as you're incrementally going through that business case and defining what the why is, what you're building, how you're building it, and also what the metrics are, and what your definition of success is, you know, and it expands as you go forward. And so it's a circular thing. So you're not going off track and you're keeping your, your eye on the ball and the investment is maximized as possible. I was going to say, you know, everything about what you just described probably didn't happen within Craigslist for the first decade. I don't, I just don't believe if they were looking to make the product sexy, that was one of their objectives. So I think being, being mindful, uh, product managers or product marketing managers are a luxury that some companies can afford. My short way of making a really bad joke. Charles, to you, my yeah, friend. Let me hop on that. Um, I've worn many hats in my career. I've actually worn the product marketing manager hat, PMM hat inbound. And I think there's a, there's a convergence between uh, product management, product marketing management, inbound and outbound, and also general marketing. And you're absolutely right. I think PMM is a luxury as a company to have. But PMM, when done right, helps the, the overall product stick the landing and find product market fit. I always tell my teams that shipping is just step one. You have to make sure you stick the landing, which is making sure you're building an emotional con- um, connection with your audience making sure you're listening to the feedback loops and iterating fast. And I think product marketing management is that unique role that sits between product and marketing that really helps you shape kind of your go-to-market strategy and approach to make sure that the product is sticking the landing. Man, if I was designing that deck for that pitch, I would have the most fun showing the person doing the perfect pole vault and then just landing on cement. Just a picture says a thousand words. (laughs) Charles, I might have to steal that from you, but I will credit it to you, my friend. We have room for another question here, and you've been waiting patiently. Again, trying to be anonymous and respectful of the individuals. Abdul Rahman, you're now in charge of the question today on the stage. The stage is yours, my friend. What do you want to ask? And uh, I think we have a few minutes to address this one before we go to closing thoughts. Thank you, Red, for this intro. Hello, everyone, and salam alaikum, Sumaya. Actually, my question is, you know, I'm considering the product I'm asking about is our careers, okay? My career as a product, okay? So uh, how everyone is managing, they're discovering for this product or for these careers, okay? I'm working in a tech like for eight years and I have some kind of perspective. And my question is, what is your point of view on this perspective? Okay, so my perspective is coming from like uh, the seven highly effective people traits, okay, that you move from being dependent to independent, then to be uh, interdependent, okay? But when we translate this to our real world, you can see that education, whether in schools or university, it's like a fairly world, you know, Nothing close to the companies and the market and the real life where everything depends on being uh, interdependent. So I see some kind of chasm between schools and universities and the real world of companies and markets. And what I'm guessing as a solution there for this gap 
is the productized careers where individuals who graduates whether from schools or universities instead of getting a job with a range of responsibilities that are flexible and moving from year to another they start with a productized career just one product or one yep. service and increase their customers so uh, they are not vulnerable to the one 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 on one relationship uh, with companies either in or out you know, this is a fantastic question to be asking on a product management podcast with a university that is the owner of said podcast. So there is some humor in this question, but I think you're also asking a question as to why we created this. I mean, you said it yourself. It's getting a career in this role doesn't happen from a university. It happens from other factors that have not been properly defined. So I think this is, as Sumeya would call it, a meta question. And Sumeya, I'm going to have the hand the uh, proverbial microphone over to you. And Abdul Rahman, this is a fantastic question. So thank you. And hopefully you don't mind, we're going to jump right into this one. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. This is one question that made me stop and think for a second. And I think whenever we're talking about systems that have been around for a long time, and they have, you know, they have been established, they're complex. For example, higher education system or the government or the treasury, like all of those systems are so entrenched and established, but there is also room for innovation. So when you think about the companies we've seen in the past, you know, decade or so, and even before that, think about Mentosori, you know, a different kind of system, General Assembly, there are opportunities for this innovation on the side. It doesn't mean that all companies are open to it. I mean, after all, for example, the tech industry makes up less than 10% of the overall U.S. employment specifically. And sorry, I'm being very U.S. specific here because that's the market I understand a little bit of. So my response to this question is whenever we're talking about complex systems, the answers are not simple, number one. Number two, I get excited when I meet entrepreneurs working in this space because I'm always looking forward to the craziest ideas that are sort of going to create something that I don't expect that viscerally I might react negatively to, but over time they prove me wrong. Again, look at the General Assembly when it was introduced to most people more than 10 years ago. Not everyone took it seriously, but then they did a series of smaller experiments and and they did more and now a lot of companies work closely with them. Having said all that, I think there is, we have enough space for all these different companies. There is room for innovation. It doesn't answer your question, but I think, uh, you know, having a little bit of a mental model around really complex system that we can't individually change helps us all. The only thing we can individually change is if you have a really great idea that you think is going to make a difference, uh, go for it. Work on it. This is the time. Charles and Pam, thank you for waiting patiently. If you have thoughts on this and you had the time, you're welcome to chime in before we get to concluding thoughts. But as a professor at a university, I have to push back on what I think I heard, which maybe I didn't fully hear, which is that universities and education is detached from reality. That is such a wide, a pervasive myth. 
and there's room for improvement. But what you learn in a university is critical to the success as a product manager in terms of being able to articulate your point of view, getting practice writing, getting expertise on how best to write, get teamwork, working in teams, and analytical thinking, identifying problems. Everything in the university does have application. It's just taught to people who are going to a broad range of different applications of that. And so the core needs to be applied and there needs to be some translation. And the other piece to say is, yes, universities are changing. Just Even though Samaya mentioned a lot of our competitors here at the University of Washington, you know, there are a lot of for-profit competitors in the educational space because there is room for improvement. And I think that is also a lesson for all product managers is that make yourself obsolete because if you don't, somebody else will. So it's a matter of continuing to innovate and push boundaries and not just hold on to what was, but what could be. And I think what we're doing here at the Product Management Center is a part of that. I think a lot of universities and a lot of different programs here at the University of Washington are blending these frameworks that are tried and true and work across a broad range of industries, coupled with experiences that help you apply it and see how it applies to where you're interested in. So anyway, <laughs> had to chime in but on that. Jeff, very quickly, Jeff. <laughs> Your center is an exception. It's not a rule. I would like to, to highlight that. There is still uh, product management programs are not a normal thing in most universities. Oh, yes. Sorry. That I agree. So the Product Management Center for giving explicitly stuff for product management. But what a product manager needs, most people learned a lot of the skills that you need in product management. You learned it in undergraduate education, not applied to product management, but these writing skills, these persuasion skills, these analytical skills, the data analysis, these are all taught in courses. But yes, this center is unique in that we're directly serving product managers, applying the knowledge Anyway, off my game here, just like radar went off. It's like, whoa, the universities are part of the future. We do need to have some innovations like everybody else. Charles or Pam, do you want to chime in on that before we get to closing thoughts or just dive into what you want to leave the listener with? I'll try to do both. Uh, first, uh, thank you, Jeff and team, for that invite. I would say um, when I was coming up, product management wasn't a thing. It was banking and consulting. And I kind of fell into product management by accident. And I'm very thankful and blessed that I did. And the work that you and the team are doing, trying to create paths to product, is really admirable. I think um, product managers are they're not created, they're made. Because as a product manager, you've had other functions or other roles before you became a PM. And those roles help you have empathy, have you help you like with discovery, help you with understanding as you get onto the hot seat. So you're able to like pull in from all the experiences you've had. I've worked in a dentist office, first job before college. I've worked answering phones. I've worked in finance, worked in supply chain, and before I came into tech. So as I take my PM seat, I'm able to have that context and lived experience. And I think that helps me with my product sense. So um, I'll say, once again, thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed uh, learning from other speakers and also the questions from the audience. Back to you, Jeff. All right. Thank you, Charles. Pam, you could either chime in on the topic of PM your career and uh, the value of education, or you could dive straight into bullet points of what you want to leave the audience with on discovery. So I think I'll do both. And it's been great. I really appreciate having the opportunity to collaborate and work with you guys over this as I said, when I started product management, that there really wasn't a thing. And I do believe that to be an effective product manager, Charles said it correctly, you really want to have different experiences. I think to be the 
best product manager. And I think it's important to be good in the and knowledgeable in the industry. There's a lot of people that may disagree with that, and that's okay. But I think you have better instincts. So, you know, when I was implementing hospitals and bringing them live and doing all these things, I really understand the nuances that are needed inside the facility. So we're building a new SaaS application where we're talking to docs, we're talking to the CIOs, we're talking to CEOs. We understand, and I understand from being there and being, you know, boots on the ground, if you will. I think that helps. That doesn't mean I know it all, right? You're always constantly learning and that, and that pain in the game changes, but it does set that foundation. So completely agree with that. I think that the final thoughts I would, I would leave specifically for the topic of best practices for product managers during discovery is to really, to me, it's the four W's. What problem are we solving? Who are we solving it for? Why are we solving it? And where, or, you know, what's the market that we're going towards? And keep that mantra in your mind, because that's, it's not a siloed event either. It is one you want to make sure you collaborate with your team and your stakeholders, because they can also help as you go through the process of, of peeling back those layers. You might say, this is, we're going to build a purple widget today because purple is the way it needs to be. And as you go through your discovery process, you're going to find out, well, actually it needs to be blue, right? So in a short period of time, it's always really important to, to keep that in mind. And always having a, a different set of views is really important. So you're not focusing and going down one path and building out a product or a suite of products that are really fit for one customer. That's never something you always want to have it with a diverse set, whether it's a customer or prospects or other industry experts. And thanks again. And everybody, I hope you have a nice holiday. All right. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, Charles. Sumaya, did you have time to just give us some concluding thoughts on discovery? Yeah. First of all, <laughs> I don't know if there are any soccer fans around here, but for those who, who watch, I'm excited about tomorrow's match. <laughs> and uh, congrats to uh, Messi and team. But uh, no, to talk about product management now, I think what everyone has probably heard between today's episode and the other two we've done on this topic is that there is so much we can learn here about the problem, about the customer, about the market. So when we're talking about discovery, it's a single word, but it has so many different facets. And what we do with that information from discovery is also another important part of the conversation. And so hopefully the stories you heard here today were very helpful. So go back and, and hear the other episodes too, and hopefully you get a, a more nuanced picture of what we've been talking about as well. All right. My concluding thoughts are Pam, Charles, Sumeya, thank you for giving back. Thank you for being here to share tangible frameworks and some stories about how you've applied them on the job. And thank you to all the listeners who are going to download our past episodes, get us to 100,000 downloads. Again, it's not about the number or the vanity. It's really about we set out to make knowledge more accessible, and we set out to make product management more inclusive. That means we need more people to feel comfortable or see themselves belonging in product management. And that means that all product managers need to be thinking about their technology and who's seen, heard, and invited to utilize and inform how that technology looks in the future. And so we really want to see more inclusive future. We want to see all of you, as you're doing your discovery work, have a, a lens towards inclusion, have a lens towards, okay, who have I accidentally 
excluded by the first people I talked to? Who have I accidentally excluded by creating this prototype or this A-B test? And am I going down a rabbit hole where I'm continuing to serve the people that were already served before when that already served before was a limited view of who could have been served, whether that's based off of race, gender, based off of neurodiversity or ability. Uh, There's a broad range of factors. But once you in that discovery work, that's your chance to really be thoughtful about who are you building for and think more broadly about not just who's in your network and who is currently served by your customers, but think more inclusively about who's been marginalized historically by society and by your company. So that's what I hope you take away, which we didn't get to dive too deep into, but I really think that's my two cents to really think more inclusively during discovery because it sets you up to go down a path that could be hard to change later. And then you have to justify, why would I build for this inclusion? Why would I build for that when you could have built for it in the first place if you would have done thought so. Anyway, I also got my defense mechanism up when somebody said, what's the point of university? So my brain is just completely fried. But I love the energy that our guests brought here today. Thank you all for coming here and wishing everybody a wonderful end to 2022.